This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, a lot of things in between. I'm Jessica Levinson, a professor at Loyola Law School. I'm joined by Joe Armstrong, the show's co-host and producer. He's also responsible for the intro and outro music that you hear and hopefully love at least half as much as I do. We have a lot of legal topics to cover today, a lot of them bleeding over into the political realm. Joe, what are we discussing today? So many topics, Jessica. It was hard to choose the best of them. Uh, Just as a quick note here, closing arguments for the Kyle Rittenhouse trial are set for Monday, just two days from now. So we'll be back with a comprehensive episode on that story early next week. But as for today, we're going to talk about the subpoenas and an indictment in the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection. In another aspect of that same story, we're going to give you an update with former President Trump's fight to keep White House documents from being released by the National Archives. We also have an update on Biden's workplace vaccine mandate. And last but certainly not least, we'll check in on some oral arguments from the Supreme Court that address the religious rights of an inmate facing the death penalty. So, Jessica, let's begin with the indictment for contempt of Congress, a former White House chief strategist and senior counselor to former President Donald Trump, Steve Bannon. We've talked about this case a lot in previous episodes of Passing Judgment. So can you please bring us up to speed on how we got where we are right now? Yes. I mean, how far back do we want to go? So, of course, there was an insurrection in the Capitol January 6th. We all remember this. I don't think it's an overstatement to say if this isn't an attempted coup, it certainly looks a lot like it. And Steve Bannon was one of the people who was involved in the sense that it was obviously former President Trump who went to speak at a rally, kind of ginned up support from this angry mob that ended up uh, storming the Capitol. And we know that President Trump was in contact with Steve Bannon leading up to January 6th. And we know that Steve Bannon uh, was involved in the events that, frankly, led to this insurrection. We just don't know exactly what everybody knew, when they knew it, and what was intended. And that's why there's this House Select Committee that was formed to look into these questions. Now, it should go without saying, but of course it doesn't. We need answers to these questions. We had a former president who potentially tried to subvert the Constitution, prevent a peaceful transfer of power, and undermine our greatest governing document, again, the Constitution and how we move from one leader to another. And part of that story is knowing what Steve Bannon said, what he knew, when he knew it. And that's why the House Select Committee subpoenaed him. And they said, come in. They said two things. One, give your testimony and give us documents. Steve Bannon, of course, said no and no, and was just completely recalcitrant, uh, did not engage with the House Select Committee, as far as we know, at all, basically through this claim that he was protected by former President Trump's executive privilege around himself and said, look, I, even though he was not a member of the White House at the time, even though we're talking about a former president, and even though it's not at all clear how these documents or the testimony would actually be covered by executive privilege. He said, I'm not coming because of executive privilege, because President Trump basically told me executive privilege, so I'm not coming. Uh, So what happened? 
The House Select Committee said we need a criminal contempt referral to the Department of Justice. Then the full House voted. We talked about that on a past episode. And then we were kind of in limbo, Joe, for, gosh, a couple of weeks now. And people were saying, like, where's Merrick Garland? What's going on with the Department of Justice? Are they going to indict Steve Bannon? And last night... We got the news that, in fact, yes, the Department of Justice is indicting Steve Bannon, and it's on two counts. The first count is you didn't show up, you didn't provide testimony, and the second count is, and you didn't give us records. We don't have any documents that we asked for. So that is where we are right now, and he's expected to turn himself over on Monday. Yeah, we don't throw the word coup around lightly in the United States of America. So this investigation is serious business. So what does all this mean for Steve Bannon? How much trouble does this new development mean he is facing? Well, he's facing significant trouble. I mean, he had some moments where he could have said, "Okay, hold on. Let, you know, let's try and reach a compromise. He didn't do any of that. This reached the nuclear option here. I don't think that we've had a contempt of Congress charge I believe, since Watergate. This is not something that our country engages in lightly, and for good reason. So he could face some jail time, I believe up to a year. He could face a penalty. And I suspect that the moment for him to be able to try and cut a deal might be over. So, Joe, I know we're going to talk about the rest of the January 6th Select Committee's work in a minute, and I think that's really where we kind of leave this, which is now... Other people who were subpoenaed have to be looking at what happened to Steve Bannon and think, okay, um, yeah, I I think I might go ahead and, um, you know, put on my dress shoes and, and head over to Congress now. Yeah, exactly. To your point, Steve Bannon is far from alone when it comes to subpoenas from this commission. Uh, The commission has issued nearly three dozen subpoenas to date. And on this list are people like conservative lawyer John Eastman, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Communications Dan Scavino, former Defense Department official Kash Patel, former White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany, Trump's senior advisor Stephen Miller, former White House personnel director John McEntee, former deputy chief of staff Christopher Liddell, Mike Pence's former national security advisor Keith Kellogg, a number of people who organized that rally on January 6th before the insurrection, and several others as well. So we talked about this before, like are they making an example out of Steve Bannon? What does Bannon's indictment mean for those other witnesses who have been subpoenaed? Yeah, so I think in part, the indictment of Steve Bannon is to indicate to other witnesses, we take a congressional subpoena seriously in this country. But I also think in part, it's not just to set it an example, it's to say to Steve Bannon, and congressional subpoena, I think I've said a version of this before, you know, it's not a brunch invitation, it's not optional, you need to comply, or at least attempt to comply, and then tell us if you're not fully complying, why not. And So I think that I know we're now going to move into talking about President Trump's suit against uh, the National Archives in Congress to try and prevent the disclosure of other information, other White House documents. So I'm saying that, Joe, because I think that people are going to look at the outcome of that suit and then look at Steve Bannon being held in contempt of Congress. And those two things will be kind of at the top of people's minds when they decide whether or not to comply with a subpoena. But you have to think, particularly people like Mark Meadows, who did not show up yesterday when he was subpoenaed, 
that they are looking at this criminal contempt indictment and they're realizing that this Department of Justice is prepared to move forward with criminal sanctions if people don't show up. Exactamundo, Jessica. More news, as you said, from the January 6th committee. Trump is trying to block the release of subpoenaed White House documents. And this has been an ongoing back and forth situation for a number of weeks. Remind us where we are with this story currently. Yes. So we kind of previewed this a little bit by talking about Steve Bannon. But, you know, as we know, obviously, the House Select Committee was formed and they're looking into what President Trump knew when he knew it and to what extent he really set all of this in motion. And as part of that, they have subpoenaed certain White House documents and they subpoenaed the National Archives who hold those documents. President Trump, no stranger to litigation, sued the National Archives and sued Congress. And he said, no, don't turn this over. Now, Joe, I'm skipping over a little bit. There was some up and back that we talked about in a previous episode where former President Trump said, I'm going to exert executive privilege. And then the Biden White House, the White House counsel said, "Uh, well, you can do that all you want, but we're the basically we're the current occupants of the White House, and everybody. I'm obviously paraphrasing here. The letter didn't say this exactly, you know. But we're the occupants of the White House. We looked at this claim of executive privilege and no dice. And there's this line that we talked about in a past episode where the White House counsel um, says, "I took it to be essentially." You don't get to wrap yourself in the protection of the Constitution when you're trying to overthrow the Constitution. And so Trump obviously was upset that the Biden White House did not say, yes, we're asserting executive privilege. So he's gone to court and he has said, stop the release of these documents. Now, the district court, the trial court said uh, to former President Trump, nope, these documents can be released. Former President Trump, of course, then appealed. He went to the Fifth Circuit. And the most recent thing that happened is the Fifth Circuit said, okay, we're pushing pause. We're going to have a very temporary stay while we hear oral arguments in this case. Now, I do want to be very clear with everybody. It sounds like this is a win for former President Trump, but this is so normal in the sense that this is what Court of Appeals do. They say, let's stop for a minute, let's maintain the status quo, and let's hear what the arguments are. And that's why a different panel, but that's why it was so troubling when in the abortion case coming out of Texas, the Fifth Circuit did not push pause and say, don't implement this law. In this case, I think the Fifth Circuit did what you know they typically do. They say, okay, we'll hear oral arguments in this case. They're going to hear them on November 30th. I don't want anybody to take this to mean that the Fifth Circuit thinks former President Trump is going to win. And in fact, if you look at this claim of executive privilege, it is really, in my mind, it is weak tea. It is really weak. And I expect that these documents will eventually be turned over. We could see an appeal to the Supreme Court, even this conservative Supreme Court. Um, I I don't think they're going to disagree with what the trial court has already said and what I expect the Fifth Circuit to say. All right. So we will keep an eye on that and update you when those documents eventually get released and when those oral arguments happen. But let's move on, Jessica. 
The Fifth Circuit made another ruling on Biden's vaccine mandate recently. Now, this fight began in early September when the Biden administration announced bold measures to combat the smoldering COVID-19 pandemic. The plan was to mandate that companies with more than 100 employees, that they ensure that their workers are fully vaccinated or test negative once a week, and that's a deadline of January 4th, 2022, which is not as far off as we all think it is. Employers would be responsible for paying employees if they take time off to get vaccinated and provide sick leave for workers if they need time off to recover from side effects. Employers would not be responsible for paying for vaccinations or testing, and that's a motivator to push, or at least an attempted motivator, to push workers to get vaccinated rather than opt for that testing scenario. As for the costs for weekly tests, they can add up, especially if the employees have to pay for the tests themselves. Those who choose the regular testing option would have to start wearing masks or face coverings while on the job starting on December 5th, which is even closer to where we are right now. About 84 million workers in the United States would be affected by those rules. And a separate rule would mean that 17 million healthcare workers do not have the weekly testing option and they must be vaccinated by that same January 4th of 2022 deadline. But, Jessica, not so fast. Last weekend, a judge on the Fifth Circuit a Court of Appeals granted an emergency stay of Biden's new rules over the weekend, which puts the rules on ice for the time being. But then just last night, the story keeps developing, there was yet another ruling from the Fifth Circuit. So, Jessica, this is getting confusing for me. Where does this stand right now and where is it going? So basically last night, the Fifth Circuit, in an opinion that I really do have to say was rather astonishing, even for the Fifth Circuit, said we were right to push pause on this vaccine mandate. And they said that um, the vaccine mandate, which I think you're exactly right to point out, there is a testing option. So we say vaccine mandate, but it's really a mandate of testing or vaccines. Um, but the Fifth Circuit says, quote, a one-size-fits-all sledgehammer that makes hardly any attempt to account for differences in workplaces and workers. That's how they describe the mandate. This is a ruling that is surprising, not just because of their conclusion here, where I think the weight of the law really is against them, but because there's very little discussion of what they should discuss at this preliminary stage, which is the public interest. And there should be a much lengthier discussion about if OSHA, which is obviously a congressional act that is designed to protect people in the workplace, if the emergency procedures in OSHA don't cover this, then basically what are they there for? Um, now, I understand that that full discussion might not come until later, but it really was surprising to me that there was just a focus on, you know, this is too broad, this is a sledgehammer, this is one size fits all. Very little discussion of how many people have died, for instance, as a result of COVID, how effective the vaccines are, how there's an option here, of course, that again, you don't need to have the vaccine and instead you can opt to be tested. And if this Fifth Circuit decision stands, which I expect the Fifth Circuit will, when it rules on the merits, will basically come to the same conclusion, uh, then it would really take power away from OSHA to try and implement these emergency rulings. The standard, as I remember it, is basically um, in order for OSHA to act on an emergency basis, they have to find that workers face 
a, a significant and potentially life-threatening danger in the workplace, which I believe a pandemic that has killed millions of people would qualify, and that the vaccines and testing is really the only way to remedy that. And again, um, we've lived through this pandemic for a long time. I haven't heard a lot more solutions other than if you need to get back into a workplace, uh, vaccines or testing and masks. So Joe, that's that's the latest on the Fifth Circuit. I really, I just don't have anything funny or happy uh, to say about that one. We'll watch it. It almost certainly will and should go up to the Supreme Court, and they should try and correct this ruling. Okay, Jessica, but before we move on, that's not all. Aside from the wrangling in the Fifth Circuit, over two dozen states have also sued to challenge Biden's new workplace rules in terms of vaccine mandates. What is the status of those lawsuits? Yeah, so those lawsuits, it's good that you ask. And people are probably seeing like there's another lawsuit about vaccine mandates. A lot of those are not obviously people suing the federal government. Those are based on state or local vaccine requirements, again, or the option of either get a vaccine or test. And those, I think we pretty, um, well, I shouldn't say uniformly, but I should say that the vast majority of those do appear to be upheld. And that in part is because the state does have well-established authority to impose vaccine mandates. So typically those are um, laws dealing with employers or, for instance, we're both uh, talking to you from Los Angeles. We now have a requirement that you have to show vaccine cards in order to get into, well, a lot of indoor places. And then, of course, there are the school mandates. All of those are stand on different and I think maybe more kind of typically used legal grounds. So that's basically where those cases stand. All righty. Thank you, Jessica. Our final story today, our final topic involves the Supreme Court, some oral arguments, the First Amendment and the death penalty. Now, the case here in question is Ramirez versus Collier. And the issue at stake is whether or not an inmate who has been sentenced to death can have a spiritual advisor physically lay hands on them and audibly pray during the execution process. I know the court has vacillated on this issue over the years, and it seems to have reached a very specific decision point. The plaintiff here, John Henry Ramirez, was originally sentenced to death on September 8th of this year after being convicted of murdering a Corpus Christi convenience store clerk in 2004. We've talked about the background of this on our very show. So what is Ramirez's argument here? So Ramirez's argument here is that he has a right to have his spiritual advisor not just in the execution chamber, but also, as you said, have his hands on Mr. Ramirez and to pray audibly while he's being put to death. So we have had cases that address whether or not you can have your spiritual advisor in the death chamber. We don't know under the First Amendment, basically, what can you demand that your spiritual advisor does? Can they touch you? Can they pray audibly? And that's really what this case brings up. That's the question here. And Mr. Ramirez says, yes, under the First Amendment, protection of the freedom of religion, the prison has to provide reasonable accommodations. Okay. And then on the other side, Jessica, what is Texas's argument here? Texas's argument is basically, no, we don't. They make some procedural arguments that Mr. Ramirez waited too long to make his claim. And then they also claim that it would interfere with their execution protocols, that it could create a situation of a botched 
um, attempt to put somebody to death, a botched execution. And they basically say, look, we're owed deference in this area and we don't have to make this accommodation. And the latest out of this, Jessica, the oral arguments for this took place this week. So having listened to those, where does it seem like the justices are standing on this? So it was, I have to be honest, it was kind of jarring to listen to the oral arguments because you have the conservative majority of the court that has otherwise been very protective of religious rights asking questions like, well, are we sure that Mr. Ramirez you know, really has a good faith belief in religion? Are we sure, basically, are we sure that he genuinely needs this? You have the conservative members of the court kind of worrying about this parade of terribles. Well, if we allow Mr. Ramirez to have his one Baptist pastor, then what about the next person who says, well, my religion requires that I have three spiritual advisors? And it was surprising to me, Joe, because let's remember, this is a Supreme Court that has been very protective of the rights of employers that wish to deny their employees contraception based on claims of religious freedom, uh, very protective of religious schools that wish to say we can discriminate against our employees, a case we talked about from last term. Another case we talked about from last term, a court that's been very protective of religious adoption agencies that don't want to work with same-sex couples. And even more recently than that, a court that has protected people who object to COVID-19 restrictions on religious grounds. So this is an interesting case because it brings up this kind of matchup of two things that the conservative court tends to be protective of. On the one hand, um, being deferential to governments when it comes to their death penalty protocols. On the other hand, um, being very protective of religious rights. And I don't know how this will come out, but I do know that you have the liberal members of the court saying, we're worried about uh, Mr. Ramirez's First Amendment rights and his freedom of religion. And then you have at least some conservative members of the court saying, well... But how far is it going to, are we going to go if we rule in favor of Mr. Ramirez? You know, are we going to be back here all the time ruling on, you know, case by case on each specific request from a death row inmate? So I think that this is a case that's kind of paging, you know, Chief Justice John Roberts and Elena Kagan to maybe find some middle ground. So we can expect a ruling before the end of June 2022, Joe. And as we all know, Jessica, June of next year, also not that far off. Time just seems to accelerate as we move through our lives. So, Jessica, as always, thank you so much for discussing these topics with me. Thank you, Joe. All right. You can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica. And a quick note and shameless plug, Jessica has recent pieces about Trump's suit against the National Archives, Steve Bannon being held in contempt of Congress, and the death penalty case just heard by the Supreme Court on MSNBC.com. Those are absolutely free and no paywall there. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Indepe. And after a long pandemic break, my music podcast is back producing new episodes now that it is safe to do so. So please feel free to drop by joearmstrong.com slash in-depth day or find the Independence Day podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can find the Passing Judgment podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. We love hearing from our listeners no matter what position you have on these and other topics. And have a wonderful day, everybody. Mm-hmm.